Good morning, class. I'm Michael Drake, Chancellor of the University of California, Irvine, and it is my privilege to welcome you to this morning's special event. Our students will provide a formal and proper introduction of our honored guests shortly, but allow me to say that this morning we will all have the pleasure of hearing from one of the leading citizens of the world, the 39th President of the United States, Jimmy Carter. Our campus has achieved great prominence in 40 short years. We are moving ahead rapidly. Our unprecedented success derives from inspiring and empowering our people to make a difference, and from living our values and allowing those values to guide our every decision. The values I cite most often in a representative, if not exhaustive, list are respect, intellectual curiosity, commitment, integrity, empathy, appreciation or tolerance, and fun. There's no one in my experience who illustrates the power of a life lived by values more than President Carter. In too many places around the world, we unfortunately see the damage done by those who do not adhere to these values. We've all witnessed disrespectful, dishonest, intolerant behavior. Examples include hate speech in the form of anti-Semitism, intolerance in the form of condemnation of the Islamic faith, or the demonization of entire ethnic groups. As I stated last year, officially and personally, I abhor racism and I reject hate speech. I know that you all join me in this. We respect, appreciate, and value all members of our campus community. We may not always agree, but we are privileged to live in a society where we can explore, learn, and grow from our differences from our difficult dialogues. Among the many areas in which the United States leads the world, two stand out, the enduring brilliance of our Constitution and the quality of our elite institutions of higher education. Here today, in the free and open discussion of difficult issues, we will experience the best of both. This morning's discussion is sponsored by the Center for the Study of Democracy and the Model United Nations Program in association with the Center for Citizen Peacebuilding and the School of Social Sciences. Our co-sponsors all contribute greatly to the intellectual climate on our campus and in our community. I would like to thank everyone who worked so hard to arrange this event, particularly during these last two weeks. Among them, let me single out Dulce and Larry Kugelman, who sponsor the Citizen Peacebuilding Award, and our esteemed colleague, Professor Willie Schoenfeld, Dean Emeritus of the School of Social Sciences, and the very able director of the Center for, study, the, Center for the Study of Democracy. Professor Schoenfeld, Professor Schoenfeld will serve as the moderator for this morning's program and will introduce our student representatives. Please join me in welcoming him to the podium. Professor Schoenfeld. Thank you very much, uh, Chancellor Drake. I'm delighted to welcome you here to the Bren Event Center this morning. We've gathered to speak with President Carter about the Middle East and in particular about the conflict between Israel and Palestine. The President was at the Berkeley campus of the University of California yesterday, and today he is with us at Irvine. 
Why did he decide to visit these two universities in the state of California? I honestly do not know the real answer. <laughs> but I have heard it said by many that he chose first to visit the leading campus in the northern part of the state, <laughs> and then the leading campus in the southern part of the state. Let me briefly explain today's event. Simply put, it follows the Brandeis model. On January 23rd of this year, President Carter went to Brandeis University. And the process which was used for that visit and which worked extremely well, both for the university and for the president, is the one that we have tried to emulate. Now, we actually only had seven days to do this. I'd like to point out that anything that doesn't work is my fault. Everything that does work, we have to thank the people who are thanked on the back of your program. Now, the president today will speak for about 15 to 20 minutes, and then he will be asked a series of questions which have been authored by UCI students. In total, we had in excess of 130 students 130 questions which were submitted to an open website. A faculty student committee identified on your program sorted these submissions to select about a dozen of the most interesting and demanding ones. Each question will be read by one of the two faculty members on the committee. My predecessor is director of the center, Professor Russell J. Dalton, and my colleague, Professor Janan Ghazal-Reed. Maybe they would stand up for a moment. They will, of course, at the same time, identify the student who submitted the question. Naturally, after today's visit, all of the submitted questions, along with those that have been chosen, will be publicly listed on our website so you can see what our choice was and what we did with it. Last but not least, it is a question that some of you have asked, how much have we paid President Carter to come here? Now, we all know that some former presidents uh, require amounts of money which go beyond the modest budget of state universities. President Carter met our challenge. We are paying him nothing. My Lord, what a wonderful price-quality ratio. We get a great man, and we have the fortune of not having to pay what he would be worth. Now, to introduce President Carter, I'm delighted to call on two UCI students, Ms. Catherine Corrigal-Brown, a Podlick Fellow in the Center for the Study of Democracy, and Ms. Jessica Newman, President of the Model United Nations Travel Team. Good morning. It is our great honor to be here today to present President Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was the 39th president 
and during his time in office, he made many significant contributions to peace, human rights, and the growth of democracy around the world. In particular, President Carter negotiated the Camp David Accords, which were peace treaties or agreements between Israel and Egypt. These accords produced two frameworks for peace between these countries, and a treaty was later signed in 1979. This was the beginning of much significant work that President Carter has done to help bring peace to this troubled region. President Carter has also been a longtime advocate against nuclear weapons. In his inaugural address, he called for the complete banishment of nuclear weapons from the face of the earth. To this end, he engaged in the second round of the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks. This treaty reduced the number of nuclear arms produced and maintained by both the United States and the former USSR. Even though international circumstances made it impossible to ratify the treaty, both sides honored the commitments that they made in the negotiations, and this makes the world a safer place for all of us. In addition, President Carter identified the support for basic human rights as a critical component of American foreign policy. This was a shift from presidents before him and was the beginning of his 30-year commitment to human rights and the growth of democracy around the world. Since his presidency, Jimmy Carter has continued to work tirelessly to promote peace, democracy, and human rights. The Carter Center, which he founded in 1982, helps facilitate fair and democratic elections. To this end, the center has sent 67 delegations to over a dozen countries worldwide to moderate elections. In addition, President Carter has engaged in conflict mediation in Asia, Africa, and South America, promoting peaceful solutions to domestic and international conflicts. This is perhaps one of the greatest examples of the Carter Center's goals to wage peace throughout the world. In addition, President Carter served as a catalyst in calling attention to global health issues. The Carter Center single-handedly raised the call to arms against diseases that affect millions worldwide. They are preventable yet debilitating and include diseases like guinea worm, river blindness, and elephantiasis. Through a comprehensive program of education, treatment, and prevention, the Carter Center has contributed to a dramatic reduction in these diseases. In the case of guinea worm, 99.7%. He is currently working with the World Health Organization and UNICEF towards their total eradication. The Carter Center's emphasis on education not only helps to facilitate prevention, but also empowers each individual to affect change in their world. In 2002, President Carter was awarded the Nobel Prize for his decades of untiring efforts to find peaceful solutions to international conflicts, to advance democracy and human rights, and to promote economic and social development. President Carter has also authored 23 books since leaving the office, the last of which is titled Palestine, Peace Not Apartheid, which he will discuss with us today. It is our great honor to introduce President Carter. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, first of all, I want to thank uh, Dr. Drake for letting me come and Willie for arranging this meeting, and particularly Catherine and Jessica for those uh, nice introductions. 
Um, I noticed they confessed that I had a warm-up session in California yesterday to come to the highlight uh, today. And I was interesting to see that the um, primary burst of most enthusiastic uh, applause was when Willie told you what they were paying me for coming. So uh, I can see you're taking very good care of the funds that the regents give to uh, UC Irvine here. And uh, I, we have, as you know, one, a former chairman of the Board of Regents here, so he'll know that you're taking very good care of the money that they give you. This is a very important uh, opportunity for me. I'm going to make a non-political speech, which may disappoint some of you. But let me say, first of all, that I am going to discuss with you a subject that I hope that you will bring up to any candidate for Congress or for president that asks you for your support as we approach the 2008 election. At least you can help screen out the candidates in both parties who are not willing to address my intriguing and complex subject, peace in the Middle East. I might warn you in advance, this is not a simple subject. Pope John Paul II once declared that there are two possible solutions to the Palestine-Israeli conflict. One is realistic, and the other one is miraculous. The realistic one involves divine intervention from heaven. <laughs> and the miraculous one will be a voluntary agreement between the Israelis and the Palestinians. So if the candidates who come to you in this next few months won't take this following pledge, let me give you advice. Do not support them. And this is what I want you to ask them. If elected, I will do everything possible to promote balanced negotiations to achieve peace and security for Israel and a secure and contiguous state for the Palestinians. Getting American candidates to take that pledge is almost as difficult as Pope John Paul described the ultimate peace talks. Because the subject I'm going to talk to you about today is rarely even mentioned in this country. First, I'm going to give you some remarks about my recent book. There have been uh, considerable interest in Palestine, peace, not apartheid. It doesn't have any punctuation in it. I wrote every word myself, not uh, feeling obligated to rely on other authors. And I might add, as a matter of interest, that I've uh, participated in more than 120 media interviews, uh, no holds barred. I've answered all the questions, sometimes with some discomfort. And I've uh, received more than 100 invitations to come to universities throughout America. I've accepted those from Brandeis, which Willie mentioned, uh, Emory University, George Washington, I wanted to go to Washington, D.C., to Iowa, University of Iowa, where all the candidates will have to visit during the next few months if they want to get uh, the first start, uh, to Berkeley yesterday, and now to the most important of all uh, here at UC Irvine. <laughs> now, uh, prior to answering your questions, which I look forward to with some with pleasure but also some trepidation, uh, let me explain my involvement in the Middle East, because I know that uh, I served as president before most of you, all of his students, were born. 
It may be difficult for the students and even some of the professors to remember what I faced uh, as a new president uh, going to Washington back in those days. There was an oil embargo supported by the Arab participants in OPEC against the United States and a secondary boycott that was rigidly enforced against any American corporation that did business in Israel. There had been four major wars in 25 years, all led by Egypt, which was then supported by the Soviet Union with military and funds, the only major Arab challenger to Israel. There had been a lack of any concerted effort to bring a comprehensive peace to Israel. And I might say that when I was finally elected as president, there was no pressure on me to initiate such negotiations. There had never been any national site in America to commemorate the despicable facts of a Nazi Holocaust. And the Soviet Union at that time permitted only just a handful of Soviet Jews to leave the Soviet Union and come to Europe or to the United States. As soon as I became president, I began to communicate directly and indirectly with what I consider to be human rights heroes, Andrei Sakharov and Natan Sharansky. And I publicized their plight in every opportunity I had to reach the media. And whenever I met with the Soviet leaders, including President Brezhnev, I brought up the subject of the unnecessary persecution of Jewish citizens. Within two years, this public pressure resulted in more than 50,000 Soviet Jews being permitted to leave the Soviet Union and come to the United States each year. And I was very proud when Natan Sharansky was released and he gave our human rights policy full credit for saving his life. We also passed a law that outlawed any secondary boycotts and imposed severe punishments on any American corporation that complied with this pressure. In 1978, on Israel's 30th birthday, there was a tremendous crowd on the South Lawn of the White House, including Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin and several hundred Jewish rabbis, and I announced the establishment of a Blue Ribbon Commission to, to set up a Holocaust museum in our country. And I asked a Holocaust survivor, Eli Wiesel, to be the chairman. And now the Holocaust Museum in Washington is a tribute to their good work. I realized at the beginning, though, that to achieve peace in the Middle East, that I would have to be seen by both sides as an honest broker. This was not new to me. It was the same policy that had been adopted by my six predecessors in the White House, three of them Democrats and three of them Republicans. As one of my highest priorities, I negotiated what's known as the Camp David Accords, in which, in exchange for peace, Israel agreed to give the Palestinians full autonomy and to withdraw all of Israel's military and political forces from the Palestinian territories and also from the lands of Egypt. 
And this agreement was ratified in the Israeli parliament by an 85% vote. Six months later, we concluded an official peace treaty between Israel and Egypt. Last month, uh, 27 years, not a single word has ever been violated during that time. Well, I did all I could. And I left office believing that Israel would soon realize a dream of peace that they had with all their neighbors, a small nation that exemplified the finest ideals based on the Hebrew scriptures that I had taught uh, since I was 18 years old and still taught last Sunday in my church. The so-called Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures mentions justice 28 times, and it mentions righteousness 196 times. Since leaving the White House, my wife and I have traveled extensively in the Middle East, all over Israel, of course, and throughout the Palestinian territories, East Jerusalem, West Bank, and Gaza, trying to encourage peaceful relationships between Israel and her neighbors. There were a few times when the White House, through the National Security Advisor or the State Department, asked me to bring up sensitive matters with leaders in the Arab countries, and I would always do so, and Rosen and my other guests could go to all the meetings except those that were discussing official matters. Well, more recently, I have led Carter Center observer teams to monitor three elections in Palestine. In 1996, when the Palestinians were permitted to form their own government as a result of the Oslo Agreement, um, elected Yasser Arafat as president and 88 members of the parliament. And then in 2005, shortly after Arafat died, the Carter Center went back and helped conduct the election that showed where the Palestinians chose Mahmoud Abbas or Abu Mazen as their president. And then a year after that, in 2006, in January, where the Palestinians chose a new parliament and where Hamas received 42% of the votes, but a majority of the members in a new uh, parliament. We conduct elections, as one of my introducers pointed out, in, in 67 times. And I would say that the Elections for the Palestinians have been among the most honest and fair, open, and safe, peaceful that we've ever seen. But in the conduct of an election in a foreign country, we, we have to immerse ourselves completely in the society there, visiting almost every village and town in the West Bank and Gaza and getting to know the private citizens and all the candidates and the parties, uh, the ge geography, the history. Obviously, we can't go into Palestine and help conduct an election without approval from the Israeli government. So I've met very carefully ahead of time with Prime Minister Shimon Peres and Ariel Sharon shortly before his illness, and more recently with Ehud Omer, the present Prime Minister. Uh, they provided necessary cooperation, 
but always tight and uncomfortable restraints on Palestinians permitting, being permitted to vote in East Jerusalem. So very few people on earth, in summary, have had a greater opportunity than I have to understand the complex interrelationships among the leaders and the citizens within the Holy Land from my own personal observations. I'm familiar with the harsh rhetoric and uh, the extreme acts of violence that have taken place in the Middle East that have been perpetrated on all sides against innocent civilians. And I understand the fear that many Israelis feel about further violence against their people and maybe even threats from extreme voices to the existence of their nation. I have reiterated through all these years my complete condemnation of any acts of violence against innocent people, which are not justified at any time or for any goal. So in summary, I've spent a great deal of my adult life trying to bring peace to Israel and to its neighbors, along with justice and righteousness uh, for the Palestinians. I wrote this book to describe the plight of the Palestinians, almost completely unknown in our country. And because I was convinced that we desperately needed a debate, almost completely unknown in this country, about where we are and where we ought to be going, and how to rejuvenate the now non-existent peace process in the Middle East. Uh, let me refer to my use of the word apartheid in the title of the book. I make it very clear that the book refers to Palestine, what's happening in Palestine, the land of the Palestinians, and not inside the nation of Israel. And I also make clear that the forced segregation of people inside Palestine and the extreme persecution and domination of the Palestinians by the Israeli occupying forces is not based on racism. It's based on, it's based on a few Israelis and their leaders and their desire to occupy, to confiscate, and then to colonize the property of the Palestinians. There's a wide use of the word apartheid in Israel. It's used every day by, for instance, the Attorney General, whose name is Ben Yair, who served under three different prime ministers, by a former honorary outstanding citizen of all of Israel who served in the legislature, parliament, and was a, as a scholar. Her name is Shilamit Aloni. And by editors of the major newspapers, with which some of you are familiar, Hiretz, the uh, editorial board of Hiretz, regularly describes the circumstances in Palestine as apartheid. Now, litigants with cases in the Supreme Court of Israel use the word apartheid to describe what's going on there. They've explained the word, by the way, in much harsher terms than I have, pointing out that this cruel oppression of the Palestinians is contrary to the tenets of a Jewish religious faith. 
and the founding ideals of a nation of Israel. I might point out that both Nelson Mandela and, and Bishop Tutu have been to the occupied territories, and they describe circumstances there as apartheid. It's good for us to remember uh, the geography of the Holy Land. The, the West Bank only comprises 22% of the land between the Jordan River on the east and the Mediterranean Sea on the west. Israel comprises 77%, and the other 1% is, uh, is Gaza. But Palestinians, in their tiny portion, have been forcibly removed from choice hilltops, from vital water supplies, and from their most productive land, and replaced by citizens from Israel who are heavily subsidized to encourage them to move into Palestine and live there. Like a, a spider web, interconnecting roads have been built between all of the settlements and then with major roads going on into Jerusalem, dividing what's left of the West Bank into little tiny cantonments, about 70 of them. There are more than 200 settlements, 205 the last time I counted and about 500 checkpoints that obstruct the movement of Palestinians, whether they're going to their own shops or going shopping or going to college, uh, going to school of any kind, going to worship. And there's been a huge dividing wall, sometimes as high as a four-story building most of the times just 30 feet high in the occupied territories that penetrates deep inside the West Bank to carve out portions of what was left of the Palestinian territories. In unoccupied areas, it's a high fence that's uncrossable. This makes the lives of Palestinians almost intolerable. And I think it harms Israel by angering the Arab world and by making peaceful relationships between Israel and her neighbors almost impossible. It would be an intriguing experience. I mentioned this to some of the students this morning at reception. For a group of professors and students from UC Irvine to visit the occupied territories for a few days, meet with the leaders and private citizens and determine whether I have exaggerated or incorrectly described the plight of the Palestinians. The students responded that they could only get funds to go to conferences. I, I think if you put together a, a group to go, I'll help you raise the funds. An additional factor that's very important in this country, especially in the political arena, is the powerful influence of the American-Israeli 
Public Affairs Committee, known as APAC, which is exercising its legitimate goal of defending the policies of Israel's most conservative governments and encouraging maximum support in this country. Under APAC pressure, there are very few, if any, countervailing voices in the public arena. And any balanced debate is still practically non-existent in the U.S. Congress or among presidential candidates. There's no debate in this country, as there is in Israel, as there is throughout Europe and the rest of the world. In America, no debate. There is no doubt that the withdrawal of Israeli occupying forces from Arab territories will dramatically reduce any security threats to Israel. An immediate step must be the resumption of peace talks between Israel and the Palestinians, now absent for more than almost seven years. President Mahmoud Abbas, or Abu Mazen as he's known in Palestine, is the official spokesman for the Palestinians in two organizations. One is the Palestinian National Authority, where Hamas has won a lot of seats. And the other one is in the PLO, in which Hamas does not participate at all. And I'd like to remind you that the PLO is the only organization that's recognized by Israel or recognized by the United States or recognized by the United Nations. So Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the PLO, is eager to negotiate and has been ever since he was elected president. Not a day of negotiations has taken place. With the exception of one bold move by Norway in 1993, when the Oslo agreements were concluded, the history has shown that progress is possible in the Middle East only when the United States plays a major leading role as a negotiator or mediator. But to play that essential role, America must not be seen as in the pocket of either side. We must enjoy a, a degree of trust and respect from both sides. We must always make clear our commitment, unswerving commitment, to the security of Israel. But we cannot be peacemakers if American government leaders are seen as knee-jerk supporters of every action or policy of whatever Israeli government happens to be in power at the moment. That's an essential fact that must be faced, but in this country has not been faced. The American friends of Israel, who demand such subservience to Jerusalem, are in many cases sincere and well-intentioned persons but they are tragically mistaken on this crucial issue. Their demands subvert America's ability to bring the Israelis what they most desperately need and what they want, peace and security within recognized borders. After six years and now three months of inaction, President George W. Bush has announced recently that peace in the Middle East will be a high priority for his administration during the remaining time he has in office, which is 627 days and about 22 hours. <clears throat> and Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice 
has uh, called for early U.S.-Israeli-Palestinian talks based as a foundation for peace, this is the Secretary of State's words, the just-repeated offer made first in 2002 of all 23 Arab countries, that is, full recognition of Israel based on a return to its internationally recognized borders. And as I'll say in just a few minutes, those borders can be modified to some degree. This offer, by the way, by the, by the uh, Arab countries, unanimously, is completely compatible with the U.S. government's official policy, with the United Nations resolutions passed with the approval of both Israel and, and the United States, with all of the previous agreements that the Israeli parliament, or Knesset, has adopted as the official policy of Israel, and also as a more later so-called roadmap for peace, about which you've heard, predicated on a statement made by the International Quartet, the United Nations, the European Union, Russia, and the United States. The bottom line is this. Israel will never find peace until it is willing to withdraw from its neighbor's land and permit the Palestinians to exercise their basic human and political rights. As indicated, <clears throat> there's a remarkable proposal made in 2003 in Switzerland called the Geneva Accords, which spells out almost precisely what has got to be the ultimate agreement between Israel and Palestinians. Using GPS maps that had an accuracy of only one meter, they delineated the border that should be acceptable between Israel and the Palestinians, which, by the way, would leave half of the Israeli settlers inside Palestine and swap an equivalent amount of land uh, to the Palestinians just east of Gaza. It also describes what should happen uh, in Jerusalem, the holy city, and also covers the right of return, which is another very sensitive area. It covers all of the issues. When this accord was completed, a copy of it was placed in every mailbox in Israel and in Palestine. And a few weeks later, there was a public opinion poll done by the James Baker Institute, former Secretary of State in Texas, and it showed an overwhelming majority of both Israelis and Palestinians in favor. Well, the premise of getting peace in exchange for Palestinian territory, adequate for a viable and contiguous state of Palestine, has been acceptable for several decades since before I became president to a substantial majority of Israelis, but not to a small minority who have intruded into Palestine confiscated their land, and intend to stay there forever, and who are unfortunately supported by APAC and unfortunately supported by the vocal American Jewish community and by almost every member of the U.S. Congress. These current policies are leading toward an immoral outcome that is undermining Israel's standing in the world and is not bringing security. 
the growth of Islamic extremism and the unprecedented hostility toward America, with less than 5% approval of our country from Egypt and Jordan, used to be our closest friends. That animosity is strictly related to the continuing bloodshed between Israelis and Palestinians and a lack of progress toward peace. These same premises of recognizing Israel within its own boundaries as modified, acceptance of past agreements, and the rejection of violence will have to be accepted by Hamas and any other government that uh, is adopted by the Palestinians. Let me conclude by saying something that may surprise you. The long-term prospects for peace in the Middle East are not discouraging. In fact, a recent poll in January of this year by the Harry S. Truman Institute at Hebrew University in Jerusalem showed that 81% of citizens in the occupied territories, Palestinians, approve. And the same poll showed that 63% of all Israelis approve what I've just described as an avenue to peace. There's another complicating fact, and that is that three Israeli soldiers are being held, two in Lebanon and one in Gaza. And it's obvious that these soldiers should be released, maybe swapped, for some of the 9,800 Palestinians who are being held by the Israelis, including more than 300 women and more than 150 children under 16 years old. Last month, there was a, an op-ed piece in the LA Times quoted by very conservative uh, columnist Robert Novak by one of the new cabinet members of the Palestinian unity government who declared, and I'll quote, the PLO's 1993 acceptance of Israel and the disavowal of violence is a crystal clear and binding agreement that no Palestinian government has the authority to revoke. The new unity government's platform explicitly pledges it to honor all PLO commitments. Well, it's crucial that our next president take advantage of these opportunities and not be bound by any allegiance to a powerful lobby that does not promote peace in the Middle East. What I've covered in these last few minutes is a brief and accurate summary of what's in my book and my ideas and the situation in the Middle East. The text provides an avenue that can lead to what all of us want, a secure Israel, living in peace with its neighbors, while exemplifying the principles of ancient sacred texts and the founding fathers of Israel. And that includes justice and righteousness for the Palestinians. Thank you very much. Listen to Irvine.
There are many visions of a university. All of them suggest that a university should be a centerpiece for civil debate and discussion. President Carter, thank you very much. To continue today, uh, we're going to have questions. President Carter is unaware of the questions. The questions have been sorted by our faculty student committee, and I'm now going to turn the floor over to Professors Dalton and Reed. Uh, Mr. President, students, let me quickly remind you how we got the questions and how they were assembled. Uh, as part of the invitation announcement, students were invited to submit questions. We received questions from, as Willie said, over 130 questions from almost every school on campus. Uh, quickly assembled them with a student committee uh, with four students, two faculty members, to try to select a short number of questions for the time that we have available. President Carter's uh, desire was to have a dialogue with the students, so what you'll hear are the student questions, and want to thank all of you that submitted questions, and especially the students here in the front row whose questions were selected. That we'll ask, as we identify each question, the student who wrote it to stand up and acknowledge them and quickly move through so that we'll have as many questions as possible asked in the short time that we have available to us. Uh, and if they're a member of your sorority or fraternity or club, don't applause because every minute of applause takes away from another question later on. Uh, since we're at a university, the first question is about something in a university we're, we're experiencing, especially at UCI, and it comes from Chris Cialeo, a political science major. Uh, Mr. President, Chris asks, in recent years, many rallies have taken place on America's college campuses with college students taking sides in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and this university is included in that list. Do you believe the lack of cooperation between these conflicting student groups obstructs chances of peace efforts between Israelis and Palestinians in the Middle East? Uh, no, I don't. I think that uh, an altercation or debate or sometimes me even a, uh, an uncomfortable confrontation on a college campus in, America's, in America is a good move in the right direction. Uh, but I would like to see the leaders of those two groups form a combined group that would take advantage of my invitation to go to Palestine and see what's going on. Because... I think, I think if there were debates uh, in the public arena uh, in the United States, including members of Congress and so forth, uh, that brought out into the open all the issues, uh, that would not make necessary the debates on the campus. But in the absence of that, uh, I don't blame the students. If I were a student, I would be debating and maybe demonstrating as well. So thank you, Chris. But I hope you took part in it. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, we're now going to turn to some questions that deal specifically with the Middle East. And the first one is from Maria Guerinel, and she's a political science major. And she asks, Mr. President, do you think that Israel and the United States should recognize and negotiate with the Hamas-led Palestinian government in light of the fact that other countries, such as Russia, are beginning to do so? Yes, I think they should. Uh, I was there uh, on Election Day 
and I saw that uh, Hamas candidates won only 42% of the popular vote. But because of the wisdom of the, of the Hamas uh, political organizers, they only had one candidate for each seat. So that gave them a, a majority of the total uh, parliament seats, even though they got less than a majority of the popular vote. Uh, immediately after that, I went to Ramallah, uh, where the Carter Center has a permanent office. We still have it there. I met with the leader of Hamas, Mahmoud Abbas, and I encouraged him to participate in a unity government with Hamas at that time. Uh, Abbas decided not to do so. And in his absence of the Fatah party, which was Arafat's and his party, Hamas then formed a, a parliament without any opposition voices, which I thought was a mistake. Since then, as you know, King Abdullah and Saudi Arabia has brought the leaders of Hamas and Fatah to uh, Saudi Arabia, and they've now formed a unity government. And uh, I think Hamas and, and Fatah have negotiated so that the, the key members of the of the parliament, like finance minister and, and interior minister, have been selected from among distinguished Palestinians who are not members, uh, active members of Hamas or Fatah. And one of them, the finance minister, wrote the editorial that I told you about. But I think, that, yes, that Israel should negotiate with the unity government because the top leaders of that unity government, including the president, uh, has said we will abide by all the previous agreements that PLO concluded. Uh, including the Oslo Agreement and the recognition of Israel. I think the negotiations should take place. As a follow-up to that, Mr. President, that was asked by several students, so we're not identifying just one, the question came up, should they negotiate with Hamas as a terrorist organization? Well, it, it wouldn't be negotiating with Hamas as an organization, but because Hamas uh, is a, a, a multifaceted, multinational organization. Some of the leaders are in Egypt, some of the leaders are in Syria, and so forth. Uh, there's no need for Israel to negotiate with Hamas, but to negotiate with a unity government that comprises or covers all the citizens of the occupied territories uh, that have been uh, formed as a result of an honest and free and open election, yes. The alternative is not to negotiate at all and to let the stalemate continue and the bloodshed, bloodshed continue. I might say that despite the tremendous pressure being exerted by Israel and the United States, some groups are now having negotiations with or communications with the unity government, including Russia always, and now more recently the European Union. So that uh, wall that's been built against any sort of dealing with, with the Palestinian government is being broken down. Uh, this next question is from Ryan Holmes. As uh, a political science major, uh, Ryan's question is that given the wars and terrorism against Israel before 1967 and today's radical Islamists who reject the right of any Jewish state to exist in the region, what evidence or what assurances do you have that there would be peace if Israel did indeed withdraw to the pre-1967 borders? Well, first of all, I've, I've made clear that that 67 border can be modified by good faith talks to leave at least half the Israeli settlers in Palestine. Uh, I think that's the most logical conclusion. But uh, the answer to that is something that I covered in my talk. All 23 Arab nations unanimously 
have said they would accept Israel's right to exist within recognized borders. And they also said, when questioned, what relationship would you have with Israel? And King Abdullah, speaking for the group who was assembled, said we would have the same relationship between the Arab countries and Israel as we have with each other. So that's a full demonstration of uh, all the Arab countries, including Syria, including Saudi Arabia, including Jordan and Egypt, that they would recognize uh, Israel's right to exist and live in peace. And as I said in my talk also, 81% of the Palestinian people who were questioned in the recent public opinion poll in Hebrew University, by the way, said they support the two-state solution with peace for Israel in its recognized borders and justice for the Palestinians. So overwhelmingly, uh, that's true. And the finance minister of, um, of the unit, new unity government declared in a public opinion poll, um, excuse me, in, in an op-ed piece in, in, in uh, LA Times, that uh, all of the previous agreements made by the PLO to recognize Israel would be binding on the new unity government. So all of those are evidences, I think, that uh, peace could come to Israel and to Palestine if Israel will just withdraw the reasonable lines and, um, and recognize the Palestinians' right to govern themselves. I might add quickly about the wall, which is horrendous. Uh, it's an abomination. When it was originally proposed by Prime Minister Yishak Rabin with his deputy, uh, Perez, they said, let's build a wall on the border between Israel and Palestine. Then Rabin was assassinated because he made peace with the Palestinians through the Oslo Agreement. And Netanyahu and Sharon and Omer and other right-wing members of the government said, let's don't build a wall on the border. Let's let the wall go deep inside Palestine, the West Bank, to carve out property that we would in the future enclose in Israel. So that's the problem with the wall. It's not, in fact, that the international uh, court has said that the, any wall built on the, on the border would be acceptable, as was the case with the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall was built in East Germany, right on the border. This wall is not built in Israel. It's built deep inside Palestine. Uh, just a quick follow-up. You had mentioned the 23 nations agreeing. Yes. Do you believe they're willing to take the actions to, against groups that do not follow those state policies? Well, there's no doubt about that. Uh, yes. The um, Palestinian people now being starved to death because the U.S. and Israel has cut off all funds going to them uh, are heavily dependent on Arab financial support just for food and water. Uh, the, over half the people in Gaza, which is being deliberately strangled now with a wall all around it. Over half the people in Gaza are only eating one meal a day. And so the political pressure and the economic pressure, in my opinion, would be adequate to convince even the most recalcitrant members of the unity government to accept an agreement with Israel. The, the, the second question comes from Alma Sugiarto, uh, who's in international studies, she was interested to know what would be the consequences of establishing a Palestinian state for the Palestinians? How would it impact on their lives? I would be like uh, mourning. 
breaking after a dark night or a lull after a horrible storm. These people are being persecuted incredibly, uh, deprived of economic existence, deprived of freedom to move from one place to another, their prime property taken away from them forcibly. They're segregated much worse than blacks and whites in this country were segregated during those ancient days when I was a child. And so to to form their own state or nation in a contiguous area that they could govern alongside Israel and a chance to live in peace would be like a breath of fresh air or freedom after you've been incarcerated in a horrible prison. So it would transform their lives completely. And that's what ought to happen. Mr. President, we'd now like to turn our attention to the Middle East conflict and how it will affect the upcoming elections. And you spoke to this a little bit in your talk, but maybe you could summarize a take-home message for us. And this question comes from Chris Cielo, um, who asked one of our earlier questions. And he says, Mr. President, with the 2008 presidential election just 18 months away, do you believe that the next administration will have the ability to improve Israeli-Palestinian relations? And what will this improvement require on the part of the United States? Every administration of the United States since Israel was founded as a nation has had a wonderful opportunity to promote peace. And as I pointed out, when I became president, I was the seventh president to serve after Israel became a nation. All of my six predecessors had taken a balanced position between Israel and their neighbors, their Arab neighbors. President Clinton did the best he could. Unfortunately, just the last few months of his administration, he waited seven and a half years before he tried, unfortunately, but he did the best he could. And he made some good progress, wasn't quite successful. But it was based on his contribution that the Geneva Accords that I described to you in such glowing terms was finally concluded three three years later. So yes, the next president will have an opportunity, as have all predecessors, to do it. I might say that uh, George H.W. Bush, or George Bush Sr., was one of the strongest voices from the White House that insisted that Israel stop confiscating Palestinian land and quit building settlements. There was a major settlement planned by the Israelis, then the Prime Minister was Shamir, between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. It's only about seven miles. Uh, And George H.W. Bush said, if you continue with that settlement, we'll cut off aid to Israel. We now give Israel $10 million a day in aid. So George Bush Sr. cut off that aid temporarily. Israel stopped building the settlement. Uh, When I was over there later, after he left office, the settlement was being built again. So yes, any president of the United States, if willing to exert the authority and influence of our nation, can bring about a peace agreement. I might point out that my impression, since I wrote my book, is that a majority of American Jewish citizens support what I've told you in my talk this morning. But they are very quiet about it because it's difficult for uh, an American Jewish citizen 
publicly to criticize the government of Israel under any circumstances, but privately, yes. So there's no doubt that the president, if he actively or she actively supported peace talks, they would have support from the American people, from the international community, and also from a strong majority of American Jewish citizens. Now we make a bit of a transition to the context in the Middle East and not just the Israeli-Palestinian situation. Uh, this question comes from a student that we hadn't been able to contact, Alex Lines. So if you're here, you can take quiet satisfaction, but he's not in the first row. Right? Uh, Alex asks, could you please, and I think this is in the context of the funding and veto in Washington, could you please explain the implications and possible global and regional consequences of a premature withdrawal of U.S. forces from Iraq, leaving a weak, ineffective Iraqi government body to maintain control and its impact of that on the region? <laughs> One of the greatest mistakes that our nation has ever made in history was invading Iraq in the first place. It, it was an action based on lies, either deliberate or inadvertent. Uh, it was the abandonment of uh, a worthwhile military engagement that we had initiated in Afghanistan. Uh, we abandoned, in effect, our fight against al-Qaeda, the ho hope of uh, arresting their leader, and it has uh, sapped away America's international form of goodwill and a substantial portion of our monetary resources. It's debilitated our military forces, and a very wise group uh, made a recommendation, the Hamilton-Baker report a few months ago, unanimously, half Democrats and half Republicans, recommended that we withdraw from Iraq as soon as possible, not in a disorderly way, but in an orderly way, and put the responsibility on the Iraqi government, whatever there is of it, it's the best they can give them at the time, to manage their own affairs and to control violence. My own opinion and the opinion of the Baker-Hamilton Commission was that a large part of the violence that now takes place in Baghdad and other provinces is caused by the presence of the American troops there. And just removing our troops would lessen the level of environment, of violence. The, the other thing that they recommended, which has not yet been done with any sort of commitment or enthusiasm, but reluctance by the United States government, is to have an international conference to convince the Iraqi people that once the U U.S. occupation ends, that the Iraqis will have control over their military, political, and economic affairs, including oil. And to bring in, they recommended, Syria and Iran in a full-scale participation, maybe even along with um, Russia and France to let the Iraqi people be reassured 
that uh, they can run their own affairs. So in, in my opinion, there would be no deleterious effect of, a, of an orderly but, but, um, but fully committed withdrawal of American troops from Iraq. Thank you, Mr. President. We would love to continue this dialogue with you, but we uh, know we only have time for one final question. So we want to end this dialogue with a question that brings it back home to the college campus, similar to how we opened the questions, since most of the uh, people here are students. And it comes from Jason Foucault, who's an international studies and education major, and he asks, whether for economic or security reasons, the United States has always had a stake in the Middle East. The region is especially important for my generation, who's grown up surrounded by the news and events in the Middle East. How do you see the U.S.-Middle East relations changing during my generation? And what can you say to the people of my generation who seem indifferent to what is going on in that part of the world? I think you put your question, Jason, on to include the answer. I think the main problem with uh, college students is indifference, a lack of uh, deep commitment, a lack of deep commitment to help resolve and, and to even assume leadership in changing things around the world which you deplore. The, the stagnation of the situation in the Middle East is one of the preeminent uh, problems that the world faces now. And you see in, in the government, which I've said ad nauseum in my remarks to you this morning, nothing is going on. There's uh, fear, political fear, among presidential candidates or candidates for U.S. Senate or for Congress, even to speak out in a balanced position on anything that relates to Israel. They're afraid they'll lose their campaign for re-election or for election. I think there the college student group in the whole country could play a crucial role because you don't fear the consequences of, of honesty and, and frankness in addressing complex issues. You have nothing to, to lose, really. Like I don't have anything to lose. I'm not running for office. I have Secret Service protection the rest of my life, <laughs> so I can speak out. But, but I, I would hope that, that throughout California, which always takes the initiative in our 50 states, doing good things on environment and everything else, ought to take the uh, initiative in bringing peace to the Middle East and uh, just say we don't want to ever abandon Israel or Israel security. We just want good faith, balanced peace talks to initiate. Uh, we want justice and fairness for the Palestinians. That's all we want. It, it sounds like a, a proposal about which no one can disagree. But, but you try to talk to your Congress member or your U.S. Senator or the presidential candidates about this, and you'll find that they are mute. They will not discuss it. I think there is a main role that the college students can play, not just in the Middle East, but in the question of nuclear arms 
agreements, every single one of which has been violated or abandoned or rejected in the last six years. Just in the case of environmental quality, where the Kyoto round and, and global warming has been completely ignored or derogated or condemned as a premise by this administration, uh, by the um, substitution of an age-old commitment of going to war only when our security was in danger to a concept of preemptive war, which is completely unheard of. The abandonment of our nation's championship of human rights and the substitution of Abu Ghraib prison and Guantanamo prison as an image of what the United States does. All these things are issues where various groups of students might decide to adopt them as their primary interest. It just happens that the one I'm talking about this morning is the most important to me, and that's Middle East peace. But there's no limit, in my opinion, to what college students could do if you would adopt the Middle East peace process or the others that I mentioned as a burning crusade for you and not be deterred by any means from pursuing it with your complete commitment. Thank you all very much. We would all like to thank you, President Carter, for your uh, generous time, your commitment, your dedication, and for the example you set for all of us. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>